Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the program that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about whole school wellbeing as change that involves our whole community. My guest today is Dr. Chris Jansen, Director with Leadership Lab in Christchurch in Otatahi, where he works alongside organizations in the education, health, social services and community sectors on a whole range of projects. Chris is involved with design and delivery of leadership development programs, of change management initiatives, and building organizational capability and strategic planning. In addition to all this work, he's also a senior fellow at the University of Canterbury, where he teaches and supervises leaders studying in the postgraduate diploma of strategic leadership and the masters of business management. He's also, is there no end to what this man does? He also regularly (laughs) facilitates, here with me. (laughs) He also regularly facilitates workshops and um, presents at conferences around New Zealand, Australia, the Pacific, and Asia. Kia ora, Chris. We are delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Thank you, Denise. Kia ora to you. It's great to be on. Good, good to have you here. Now, Chris, you have done so much work for years supporting organizations around change. And I know that both youth development, well-being, cultural responsiveness are also really important parts of your work. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing now. I mean, thanks for the big intro. And it is... um... You know, always a bit embarrassing for people to receive that. But I was thinking, as you were saying it, that what it actually means is that I, I've got a low boredom threshold. And I, I only do things for a few years and then move on. Um, but I, I do want to quickly talk about that because actually when I left school, I trained as a civil engineer. And the only reason I did that was because the advice I was given was that or a science degree. So I chose the engineering. But as it turns out now, you know, if I was, I'm 54 now, and if I'd known what I know now, I would have made some, a lot of different choices. Um, but uh, I've, you know, kind of moved, I won't bore you with the details, but basically moved on a bit of a well-being journey, both for myself in terms of wanting to get into a career which was aligned with my strengths and therefore, you know, feeling like I was contributing, um, which I am now, but certainly wasn't back then. Um, and that pretty much involved um, initially doing all the technical stuff that went with the engineering, realising mm. for lots of reasons that that wasn't for me, um, and then getting involved in um, teaching, secondary school teacher and PE and health, um, getting involved in school counselling, um, similar kind of areas, but the benefit was I could work in you know, at depth with individuals as a therapist. Um, getting involved in teacher education, equipping teachers to be able to do that well-being um, focused work, even if they didn't call it that, you know, English teachers and math teachers and, and um, social studies teachers, you know, how to make your classroom more um, whole and to be able to um, build children rather than break them down. Um, and it's interesting kind of, you know, the short version is I've gone from being a teacher and a therapist to being a trainer of 
teachers and therapists. And then now, probably the last 10 years being involved in leadership, it's actually connected because now it's about, well, organizations. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and that's pretty much because I got sick of seeing great people getting chewed up um, by organizations that weren't humanizing. Um, so, yeah, there's kind of a link there between sort of individual um, contact to teachers and professionals to groups. And now, you know, the work I do is all around organizations and, and systems of organizations, you know, how do schools work together so that students and teachers thrive. I think, I think it's, such, it's so nicely put because we can all work at the individual level, supporting teachers to have better knowledge, supporting them to be more effective in their relationships with students. But actually, it really matters what kind of pond we're all swimming in. Yeah. And, and obviously, that's what you've come up against time and time again, is how do we improve the well-being at the organizational level? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of strengths-related too because, you know, um, like my wife is a therapist and she's very good at that in-depth individual work, which is obviously really needed. But for me, it's, um, I guess, my contribution is the healthy system, you know. Yeah. And, um, and I, I think we should well, – I do believe we can have healthy systems in organisations where people do grow mm-hmm. and love and love their work and thrive. Um, unfortunately, you know, engagement rates of staff are not that great um, and engagement rates of students are not that great, you know. So that's the motivation for trying to change that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about this massive topic that is, you know, improving the well-being of, of whole systems, what are some of the things that, you know, to, to break that down for us or to give us some insights mm-hmm. into where do you start and what do you do? Yeah, I mean... There's lots of things you could say, but um, it's kind of comes down to a few assumptions. And one of them is that I really, really believe is that um, it's a strength-based assumption that the answer is already there, but it's in fragments. So yeah. it's the same with therapy. You know, the assumption is that the person you're talking to does can put their own life together, but they just need a sounding board. It's the same thing in systems, you know, generally like in the education system, collaboration is not, great between schools you know um, within schools you know the the departmental sort of boundaries within classrooms you know so traditionally education is quite a sort of solo sport in a way where you have a cup Mm. of tea at lunch but then off you go and you do your your one on 25 thing again and so it's not like you're trying to add this magic recipe to a place that's completely stuffed you basically what you're trying to do is help the system or the organization see its strengths and then and bring them together so it's a collaboration process that actually brings well-being within organizations and systems because the answer is already there which i know sounds a bit glib but i actually do believe that i don't think i don't think it's glib i kind of feel a whole um i feel myself kind of ratchet down lots of notches it's like oh we can breathe we're actually fixed. We're actually whole. We have the answers to our problems. We just need help to articulate it and behave a bit yeah. differently. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's simple, hard things like listening to each other, you know. Um, and my work now and my team, you know, we, we just basically facilitate us and we're good at 
um, helping groups and systems listen to each other. And then they, they jump to quite normal kind of conclusions, like how can we help each other? Um, you know, and we, it shouldn't really be needed. You know, that's kind of an obvious thing, isn't it? That if we've all got strengths, why don't we help each other? But there's a lot of incentives that um, incentivize the opposite of that. You know? And sometimes they're financial and other times they're just ego and sometimes they're just fear and mm. lack of relationship, you know? So, yeah, we, we just kind of do the opposite of that. We help people get into the same room. We help build tanga so they have some relationships. And then that builds a bridge, which they can then talk and dialogue, and then they can hear each other, and then they um, generally come up with some great ideas and go and do them. So would you say kind of that at the heart of this work is helping people know and respect each other? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the process goal. Yeah. You know, the, the actual outcome we're looking for is is whole individuals and communities mm. uh, and the process of getting there is by working together you know mm. um, that's you know the the field of collective impact you know it's a nice name for a simple thing which is you know what how about everyone who's involved in a particular issue or a community sit down, down together and um, share what they have you know and work together on things um, we have to actually design big programs around that now because it's sort of um, often not the case, you know, for various reasons. And so there's some great things and, you know, like I've just come out of meetings today with education and um, school systems and kahoiako, for example, and, you know, all those things. There's actually some really good stuff happening around, you know, professionals that maybe used to sort of be a bit suspicious or um, certainly distant from each other. They're actually, they like each other you know, and they mm. work through a lot of things and they actually trust each other, you know, and that they can do magic now because they can just say, well, I'll help your lot, you help my lot, you know, let's yeah. tato tato here. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, much and all as we may um, complain or say how far we've got to go to make things better, I, I do have a sense when I go overseas of quite how far we've come here in Aotearoa in terms of the kahuiako structure of cross-agency collaboration, that there is a, there is an awareness that we actually need to break down silos and work together. Um, yeah, we're probably a bit, I mean, we are cool people, aren't we? So that might be part of the reason, but also we're a good scale, you know, yeah. so we're, we're small enough to kind of know a lot of people and you do need um, relationships, you know, to be able to do stuff together. Um, you know, so we're small enough to have good connections um, and we can we can mobilize whole cities, you know, yeah. we've seen that again and again. So tell me about, tell me about some of the examples where you've seen things working well. What, what have you seen helping and what have you seen hindering? Oh, it's, it's a hard um, one to choose because there's so many examples of that. Um, but probably, well, I mean, I know you've um, possibly going to ask me a question about what I really want. What's my number one um, goal here? And I think, I've been thinking about that question and I think in education around well-being, I think our biggest piece of work that's required is in our secondary schools. And um, that's not criticizing them because I'm from a secondary teaching background, but I think there's a um, biggest risk in the secondary area, partly because of the age of the young people and partly because of the, the sort of um, historical structures of how learning happens in the high schools, mm-hmm. um, which 
creates this narrow pipe with, you know, limited subject choice, um, assessment regimes around parts of the curriculum but not other things. So you've sort of got a primary school education which is quite holistic in general and then you've got this kind of narrow pipe which is secondary schools and you've got to get through that one. Um, and then it goes really broad again because the universities and obviously the workplace are really broad. So because of that kind of imagery of this sort of funnel and that is a bit of a pipeline, I am really, really passionate about secondary schools shifting their practice, which, you know, was kind of invented 100 years ago or more. Um, and so we've seen some great progress there. Like I think in, um, you know, in Christchurch, probably like most places, the, the secondary schools, because of the incentives and the zoning and the um, history, have struggled to share with each other. And yet when you go and visit them, they're all kind of working on similar things, which makes you wonder why everyone's trying to reinvent the wheel. And um, so, you know, I guess it's been a privilege to be part of projects um, down here in Canterbury, but also in other parts of New Zealand where we've been able to bring secondary schools together, and some around well-being, others around um, teaching and learning, um, all different kind of areas, and be able to say, you, you know, let's at least start in the same room, let's hear each other, and you know what, we might find we've got some things in common, and then we can share with each other. And um, so it feels a bit like in the last two years, maybe, maybe three years, that the ice has melted between secondary schools. Um, and there's kind of almost a complete free flow of um, innovation and information and, and support between schools, private schools, girls' schools, boys' schools, co-ed, um, high decile, low decile. There's, a, there's a, um, probably a community of a couple of hundred or more, um, yeah, probably more educators who are meeting regularly to share practice around, like I said, the wellbeing initiative. We had, we had all you know, 33 secondary schools. Um, that's all the secondary schools in Canterbury. We had them all together for the last two years. Um, you know, they invested a lot of time. Um, so, yeah, that's probably been a real um, – it's an initiative that we're really, really proud to be a part of. Um, and it kind of has felt to me, and I know I've been, I've, you know, I've been at the community of practice a little bit, but not all the time. And it's felt a bit that there's been a pull and a push, that there's been a sense of why would us traditionally competitive schools come together? Um, part of the reason is um, we've got some very severe problems. And actually, let's face it, um, these teachers are primarily care about what's happening to the young people they're working with mm -hmm. and, and saying, well, gosh, these problems are too severe. Our competition seems really small in comparison. And, and then the other side of what's the possibility if we start sharing? And I think it's been exciting seeing that unfold. Yeah, and I, I think uh, you did right in that. It's in that order as well. I think, um, well, I, I find um, when we discuss collaboration and trying to build collaboration of fragmented systems with groups, um, we realise that actually the positive emotion of, hey, this could improve our communities or young people isn't enough to start things. It would um, be nice if it was, but um, it's actually the negative emotion of, been aggravated about something, just been appalled that something's happened, been disgusted, 
you know, and thinking we've got to change this. And I, I, I don't see that as a negative thing. It's obviously a negative emotion, but it, it, what it does is it provokes people into saying, for God's sake, you know, we can do something about this, so why don't we? And so that's what's happened here is that, you know, it was some very, very serious um, incidents that happened with some secondary students that provoked some of the key principals to say, come on, let's just get over ourselves, Enough. shall we? Yeah. You know, so yeah. that, that was the start. And then, you know, but that led to a whole bunch coming together, but the ice was there. So there was no sort of fluffy, um, we're going we're gonna to enjoy this you know, that we don't even like you very much, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yet we're here because we know we have to be here because our kids are suffering. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, obviously that's not sustainable. You can't stay in a collaboration where you hate people, you know, but, but if that's the reason you come together for a higher cause, then that's fine, absolutely fine. And then as long as we have those conversations and listen to each other and through the dialogue realise that, hey, we're all very similar, you know, we might have a different brand or a different entity or whatever, but, you know, we've got more in common. Mm-hmm. And then through that, you know, Fanoingatanga, people then start sharing with each other. And, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of simple. You know, it doesn't happen fast, but it's a simple kind of repeatable process. Mm. But a lot of these things, aren't they, kind of fall into the, the simple but not easy. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you about them in 10 minutes but it's going to take us several years to really yeah dig in yeah yeah and that's why um you know whether you're talking about sort of trying to build collaboration within a school because that's a challenge you know between different parts of a school or between schools or Mm -hmm. whatever you're talking about um you need to think carefully about your beliefs and assumptions before you think about the strategies because you know, for example, you assume that the answer is already known and we can probably just go and explain it and then you do it, you know, like an external idea, then that's an assumption that's going to run into major problems with change management. You know, you're going to get rejected and you're so, so should you, mm. you know. Um, but if you have an assumption that everybody brings something to the table, everybody has strengths, therefore the point of my role is to help people listen to each other and facilitate a solution together, you don't have any problems with change management, you know. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, probably in terms of number one, learning about change management or, or leading change, which is kind of a friendlier name for it, is don't go in with a solution, you know. Co-design with people, you know. Mm. Go in with some ideas, but don't um, insult them by thinking that you already know. Mm. And... Um, and I like what you said about kind of go in and help people clarify their shared position that, you know, if it is frustration or, or anger or sadness with the current situation, clarify what people have in common Yeah, totally. to, to build on that for change. Yeah. And, and that, so I think uh, from a leadership perspective, we used to have this model they call it the heroic leader in the literature, but, you know, the idea that a leader was an individual um, and their job was to kind of cast the vision, you know, and say, follow me. But like, you know, Braveheart, you know, you're on a horse with a flag and he runs along the front and he, he goes, oh, and, then, oh, and then they charge <laughs> and they all chase, you know, and that, that model of leadership is a charismatic, you know, often a man on a horse, you know, with a great idea and trying to convince people to do what they 
you know, have come up with brilliantly. It's too much pressure on the person for a start. How could they know what the answer is? We, we've kind of been indoctrinated in this idea that the leader is an individual and the media reinforces that by kind of um, naming all these amazing leaders. You know, and the classic example I know of is um, when I say student volunteer army in Christchurch, you think Sam Johnson, of course, because he's apparently the leader of the volunteer army. But actually, you know, I employ one of the guys who was sitting next to the couch with Sam Johnson and you've never heard his name because it was actually invented by a whole bunch of them. But the, the media loves to think that there must be a charismatic individual somewhere that, you know, leads. And I think that's sad because it, it's not possible, you know, and, and uh, no individual charismatic person can get free far these days. Um, a, they can't get anyone to buy in because they all feel patronised. Uh, B, they, they can't possibly know the solution that we're trying to work towards. You know, we're, we're living in a pretty ambiguous world, aren't we? And mm. the only hope we've got of coming up with good solutions is to co-design things together, you know, and get as many people involved to be able to go, you know, let's, let's create a, a, a best fit for now mm. and let's see how it goes. And so is, is that why collective impact is so important to you, that you just keep seeing the opportunities for bringing more and more people into co-designing the solutions to some of our bigger problems? Yeah, I think if, you, if you're interested in sort of solving tasks, you know, or just in completing tasks, you don't need to worry about collaboration. But if you're interested in having a crack at complex issues, you know, and all social issues are, Complex, you know, yeah, with, yeah. Yeah, they've got multiple causes and multiple um, solutions that go with them. The the only hope you've got is to is to get as many perspectives around the table and be able to spend time to be able to go, let's unpack this together. Mm-hmm. Let's come up with some best guesses, basically, and you can call it prototypes if you want. Um, and we'll try five things and we'll see how they go. And um, hopefully three of them will work well and we'll do more of that. And the other two will just say, well, that was a, not so good, but we did learn from it, you know. Yeah. But it takes a, it's a whole different style of leadership, you know. And I think the empowering part of it is that, you know, for those of us who don't feel charismatic and don't feel ins- inspirational, there's actually a huge opportunity because um, that's the kind of leaders we need. And, in fact, yeah. charisma can be a barrier, you know, if you're mm. – too good at talking the talk, you might find you're using heroic leadership, which has a very limited lifespan. And I love the idea that, you know, we're all putting our grain of sand on the beach to help, you know, that, that it's not any one person's individual grain of sand that makes the difference. It's the fact that we all pitch along and put ours down. Um, yeah, and it's, it's easy to, like I know um, when I studied and researched in this area, I know that the data that was coming out um, from collective about collective leadership and how, you know, it's kind of everybody's a leader thinking, you know. And I remember that some of the critique at the time was, well, that's so that's very kumbaya, Chris, and you know, um, quite idealistic, but not actually the way the world really works. Well, I completely argue the opposite now. You know, that if it's not the way the world's working, that's the reason why it's stuffed, and. Um, and we need people to believe in the collective, mm. you know, and really, really believe in it. We're not saying, you know, I'm not saying we don't have hierarchies, we don't have leaders, we don't have um, people with the roles of, you know, 
mm. taking charge on things. Not at all. Um, but we just have to be inclusive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I remember hearing um, a young medic in Australia called Ben Vaness who'd been looking at the problem of med- well-being among medics. And he drew this lovely analogy to the road toll in Australia, which had come down enormously over the last 20 years. And he said it didn't happen because someone had a great idea. It happened because road design was changed, car safety construction was changed, seat belts, um, alcohol laws road design was improved to make bends. You know, there was a whole load of different things that all happened together. Mm. And no one of them alone can be credited with bringing mm. the toll down. Mm. But they all did a bit. Yeah. And that's exactly right. And whether or not they were coordinated at some point, they, I bet you there were some people that knew each other and yeah. all of that. But it would have been reasonably ad hoc in the sense of that bit happened, then that bit happened, and that bit happened. But yeah. the main thing was that the the system has to be listening to itself, has to be listening to the parts and going, what what can we come up with together? Um, yeah. And I guess part of that listening is the system has to be clear about what it wants. And what we're hearing now is that the system is saying, um, and the people in the system are saying, well-being is important to us. Yeah, I think so. And that, that's becoming a very dominant um, dominant voice and I think you know I'm sure you find this too but like in my work with schools almost every school I go to now has well-being as one of its four charter goals mm-hmm. you know whereas I, I wouldn't have seen it at all um two years ago um it would have been buried down quite deep but I think people are realizing that a well-being is important in and of itself but b it's a precursor of achievement you know, mm-hmm. so if, if you've got a narrow focus and you just want achievement with a, you know, academic kind of flavor to that, even that is powered by good well-being. Yeah, yeah. And so, Chris, if you were thinking about um, the changes that you are keen to see in um, in communities in school communities in particular, what's one thing you'd like to see parents or teachers doing that you think would make the biggest difference for young people's well-being and resilience? Because I'm so, I am very, very passionate about secondary education and that becoming more flexible and more um, responsive to the different needs of young people, which are extremely broad. Um, I think the biggest thing would be um, teachers uh, realizing that the kind of way we've been teaching for a long time needs to be challenged and um, an openness to seeing the classroom is quite different. Maybe I don't need to stand up the front all the time and deliver content. Maybe it's really about learning the skill of learning. So empowering students more. Um, and I think, I think parents are, very aware of that because, you know, I have two daughters and um, my biggest wish is that when they um, continue on in their lives outside of living with me, that they make great decisions, you know, and they have the skills to do that. And so I think parents want schools to focus on that, you know. Uh, Of course I want them to do a bit of maths, you know. Um, But far more than that, I want them to sleep well at night um, I want them to feel valued as a person. I want them to be able to practice self-management. Um, I want them to um, be able to take initiative and be encouraged with that, you know. So mm-hmm. um, 
I know it's kind of obvious stuff and we do talk about it under the key competencies in education, but in the narrowish pipeline of secondary, those things are not measured generally and what's not measured is not valued. Mm. Um, and I think um, because of that, we're seeing well-being issues for young people. It's not the only reason, but we're seeing kind of a high expectation around a narrow band of achievement, you know, which is our numeracy literacy, and therefore um, young people are not thriving, you know. Yeah. I, don't want, I don't want young people to have to just kind of survive through high school. I'd love them to absolutely thrive and grow and, and, and all children, you know, not just yeah. the ones that happen to be in the top stream class, you know, if we still do that sort of stuff. But, you know, the ones who kind of are a bit lost as well or, or have different skills that aren't valued, wouldn't it be great if, you know, they were um, valued just as much and encouraged to be able to develop their kind of strengths within a, you know, high school setting so mm. that they're kind of well set up for when they're 18. Yeah, that you leave school at 18 really understanding who you are and what you have to offer the world so, and yeah. Some, yeah. some skills to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, of course, the qual- some quals, so you've you got a few yeah. keys to the door, yeah. but it's a matter of sort of the cart before the horse, you know. Um, and the, it's funny because schools actually sometimes say, oh, well, you know, our parents are quite resistant to change, you know, and they're very careful about the way they have parent um, engagement and that's fair enough but actually you know, I'm a parent they're a parent when you sit down with parents and you actually put the cards on the table and say before we talk about what we're going to do around here let's talk about your children and what do you want for them you know and you know when your kid's 19 what what kind of life do you want them to be having you know there's no resistance at all you know parents yeah. parents want the same thing they want their yeah. kids to sleep well at night not be anxious you know, and to, and to feel confident in their own identity, you know, mm. and um, and some skills to be able to work with others and not, you know, have, you'd better make friends and be able to therefore collaborate and all those things. And then you, you can say to these parents, well, it sounds like my school has a role of supporting you in that. And they go, yes, please. And then you've got a, you've got a mandate to actually be able to reinvent your learning programs away from the narrow, narrow band you know, the and, and there's some exciting ways that people are already starting to do that, even within secondary, like the project-based learning and problem-based well, yeah. learning that I think are really exciting responses. Oh, yeah, and it, there's, um, there's an amazing stuff happening with secondary. And, um, you know, if you were to believe the media, you would probably think that, um, you know, there's two or three schools are quite radical and they're, experimental and probably a bit dangerous and then the rest of us are quite conservative and and not really changing much at all but the truth is completely different than that you know if you you know I know you go in as well if you go into secondary schools every single secondary school um, is is innovating they're trying all all sorts of little things some some um, you know, like sort of gingerly stepping into that. Others really experimenting, but off the off the high diving board. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's it's nothing like what's perceived, which is you know sort of you can choose innovation or you can choose tradition. It's not like that. Yeah. You know, um, educators are intelligent people who can see that the world has changed, and they know that our education needs to adapt, and they're, mm. they're doing that and. You know, probably an exciting piece of work we're doing this year is bringing 
um, the secondary schools together that I described before, which we bring together around well-being, we're now bringing them together around um, the word flexibility. So saying, how could your schooling experience be more flexible? That might be a curriculum. It might be so what you teach, but it could also be how you teach. And it could be how you um, structure your assessment or it could be how your building looks, you know, or whatever. But let's try and make things more flexible um, because our young people are going to thrive in that environment. If you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being in other people, what would it be? I'm basically not going to change what I'm doing at the moment. I, yeah. I plan to continue this to the, to the end. But um, because I get to work alongside amazing people and, and, and equip them to work together. Um, and what is the thing that you're helping them to do? To see that they're part of a collective and that a collective can solve anything. So it's helping people to work together. That's your one thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our phrase is collective approaches to complex issues. It's the only hope you've got of tackling these things. You know, I'm cheering. I'm cheering in the 21st century where the world is coming down with individualism in every corner. Mm. I'm talking to a man whose mission is collectivism and helping people work together. Yeah, that, well, it's not. It's not just me. There's a whole lot of I us know. who believe this. Um, it fills me with great joy. The last question for you: What's your personal go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being when you find yourself feeling a bit? frustrated or down? Um, a number of things. Um, but I, I remember um, Lucy actually saying about uh, negative bias and how, you know, we're hardwired for that. And I, it's definitely true for me. I often wake up thinking about coffee and what might go wrong. And um, so I guess what I've found even in the last week helps me is I, I do get up and have a coffee and I sit down with my journal and I, um, I always, I'm very religious about it. I have a 30-minute mindfulness or journal writing or um, praying or just thinking session. And I do that before I touch my laptop. Um, and that's my own little 6 to 6.30 time. And usually by the end of that, I'm in a very positive frame of mind. Lovely. Yeah. Thank you for that. And then my kids come in and then that adds to the well-being as well. Mm. More coffee, more play. <laughs> Chris, it's been an absolute delight to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. It's been great. Thank you. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the latest research and practice in school well-being, join us at the Wellbeing in Education Conference in Christchurch from the 2nd to the 4th of April and Auckland from the 6th to the 7th of April 2020. For more information, go to nziwr.co.nz or conference.co.nz forward slash wenz20. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. 
Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.